Welcome to Rare Bird Radio. Uh, we have today Tom Stern, who is celebrating a big day tomorrow. Tomorrow is the release of his brilliant second novel, My Vanishing Twin. Tom, welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Adam. And your, yours is coming up soon, too, right? You're about a month out for Freaks of, it, right. Freaks of the Industry? Yes, Tricks of the Industry comes out in July on the heels of your book. And uh, we have Tyson Cornell and Rare Bird Books to thank, not only for putting us together uh, on this podcast, but for making our dreams come true and publishing us. Right, yeah, absolutely. And for, so Freaks is your third novel, is that right? Yes, yes, my yeah. third novel, and it's uh, my third novel about Los Angeles and sort of set the table for people who might want to get it in July. It's uh, a novel of Los Angeles, uh, the movie business. And uh, really it's about these freaks who are battling their addictions. And maybe there's somebody in this novel, people in Los Angeles will recognize as someone they know. <laughs> and I've got a different version of, of kind of a freak in mind. I've got uh, my vanishing twin about basically about a guy who's pregnant with his own twin brother uh, who's kind of born a uh, malformed, misshapen little savant genius who uh, is kind of capable of, uh, you know, turning everything he touches to gold. And it, it kind of sends my protagonist on a self-recriminating journey to kind of break his own life down, which he's kind of compromised away and, and look for a, a kind of a fresh path forward. So we were, we're both doing kind of variations on the idea or the concepts of freaks, which is kind of, I hadn't really thought about until now. It's interesting because I also have among the stories in freaks, what's so amazing to me is that uh, we've never met. We, we didn't know the other personally, or even that we existed, frankly. And one of the stories in Freaks is about a vanishing triplet. And that I have a story about twins who grew up and never knew that they had a triplet sister. And when I had this concept of a vanishing triplet, and your novel is about a vanishing twin, uh, it was one of the most incredible uh, coincidences and really made us almost kin that we both had come up with come up with this diabolical idea um which also meant you know giving life to these um misshapen and perhaps you know fear dead uh parts of of our characters that um really shouldn't be there and I, i'm amazed by uh, how different our vanishing siblings are, but the idea is so similar. Yeah, no, I agree. That I, I, when I hit that part in your book, I was I was quite surprised. Uh, um, but I do. It's interesting. I think that there are, are thematic elements that overlap, and then they're kind of both applied differently too. In my vanishing twin, I feel like there are these kind of themes or ideas of family that overlay with that. Um, and in freaks. It's interesting. There, there are definitely kind of layers of kind of familial relationships, but Hollywood plays such a big part 
in kind of the structure of that world and kind of what drives that world that it's almost like your characters in these strange ways feel like they have almost a familial type relationship because they're kind of all driven by very similar things. Uh, and it's not a, an affectionate or a loving one, but it's more like um, the element of family where you feel like, well, these are the people that I'm here with. Like, I, you know, I don't, I don't get to choose. And so I, part of what I do is learn how to navigate all that. Um, do you view your characters and freaks as kind of connected in that way or no? It's, it's uh, in, in a way, they're all part of a family. And there are brother figures in freaks. I have a, a script reader who becomes very close to a, the biggest movie star in the world, this black actor who may or may not be the Antichrist. And their relationship is very much like siblings. But the one relationship that is so um, personal and autobiographical is the story of a studio executive who is forced to leave the business after a prostitution scandal and comes home to Washington, D.C., where he gets a job in a Starbucks barista, and his twin brother happens to be the White House press secretary. And what happens, of course, is that their parents die suddenly, mysteriously, perhaps murdered, and they discover that they were triplets and that maybe they had a sister. And when they both start dating uh, the same woman, they begin to suspect that this woman may or may not be their vanishing triplet sister who has a plot of revenge. And that to me was interesting because I was no longer writing about Los Angeles. It forced me to write outside of my comfort zone and writing about Washington was really fun for me because I think there was something about a political thriller that I wanted to write, but I also wanted to explore being uh, not only a twin, but uh, when my twin brother and I were, were born, 16 years later, our mom took us aside and told us that we were actually triplets. Hmm. And that she yeah. waited until we were old enough to tell us this. And so yeah. I said, wow. And so my mom is, even today, uh, uncomfortable that I wrote about this for the novel, but I think it was something that I wanted to do. Yeah, and so you you come by yours, honestly, I'm not a twin, um, and, and to my knowledge, did not have a, a vanishing twin. For, yeah. And, 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 and that's, you know, in and of itself, an interesting phenomenon, right? So um, when I you know, started writing what, what ultimately turned into to my vanishing twin. Our books are really different tonally. And, and I want to talk about some of that because I'm really kind of fascinated yeah. by your approach. But with my vanishing twin, I think, you know, it's I, I'm taking kind of poetic license and kind of a, a kind of humorous liberty, hopefully, with, uh, with that concept of vanishing twin syndrome, which is when, you know, it's a real medical phenomenon where there are, are multiple fetuses in the womb during a pregnancy, and one of the fetuses will actually sort of consume the other. And in most cases, it goes completely unnoticed. And in some cases, it might show up later in life as sort of a cyst or something, which in some instances can be removed, and there can actually be like hair or teeth in that cyst. Um, mm -hmm. And in some very, very rare instances, 
um, there's one in particular I researched where there's a guy who thought he his whole life he'd been teased for having this giant belly. And when he was sort of 40, 50 years old, they finally discovered that it was actually his twin brother. And uh, the twin wasn't alive, but he had it surgically removed. And it was sort of like a, a partially formed human human body. And so I, I kind of, as I was writing what became My Vanishing Twin, I reached a point in it where I realized, um, you know, okay, I, I'm writing something that's about a guy who's pregnant with his own twin brother. And um, and the twin brother is going to be born and he's going to be obsessed with getting his MBA. And um, I remember thinking that's a, you know, okay, I guess that's where we're going and that's a strange way to go, but that's where we're going. And then that idea of vanishing twin syndrome kind of connected for me. Um, I didn't remember where I'd first heard of it or, or kind of, I had to kind of go back and piece together where I had researched it or, or discovered it and kind of read more articles about it. Um, and it doesn't play, you know, it, it's kind of a, a plot device for me and kind of a poetic device for me too. And that it, again, gets at that idea of a family as something that's sort of um, in intrinsic or embedded in you, like something, they're relationships that you don't really choose, but they're relationships that are defining and enduring and that can potentially force you to think about things you otherwise wouldn't face, things you otherwise wouldn't. Um, and so it's kind of a, a really different approach, um, you know, using kind of that, that, that same concept, which I find interesting. Um, I mean, not only is your novel ambitious and Cronenbergian. I mean, there's something horrific about everything you've just described. And yet, <laughs> and yet I found myself engaged from the first page. And then your voice carried me all the way to the end. And I was, you know, just struck by the, the humor. It's almost like Charlie Kaufman. You know, if Charlie Kaufman wrote a novel, it would resemble something like my vanishing twin because it's it's so smart it's so funny it never tries to be funny it just is and there's really um almost from the you know the get go i am completely interested in what happens next which i think is always the challenge and and you really um inspired me to think well, look here's how someone can do their story of this sibling rivalry. And of course, I was reading it with such interest because what I had done, I thought was original, only to read something that was, like I said, similar, but different in tone and the where the, the, the directions you take me in my vanishing twin, it goes to such unexpected places. And the two of them are so different that I, I found myself, Tom, nodding my head as I'm reading your book, which is, a, I know this is a feeling when you're reading a novel and it's good and you find yourself nodding your head. So I, I've been meaning to tell you that since I finished your book. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. That's uh, high praise. And, and I really appreciate that. Um, it's also, I don't, I don't know if you find it the same way, but I mean, you, you know, when you write something, you spend so much time sitting there working on it on your own. And it's to me always like it's just this file on my computer. And then you reach a point where that book is actually going out in the world and people are reading it. 
and uh, and first you start feeling like, how did everybody get access to that file on my computer? And then you start, but then as you start to kind of listen to people processing it, there's this amazing element that comes into play, which is that it communicated these things that you thought it was communicating, you know, not just the plot, although that's a part of it, but ideas and relationships and feelings. And I, I'm also absolutely fascinated by the notion of humor in writing, in, in, in prose, in fiction, um, how something is funny as it lies on the page, not necessarily in that, you know, th there's sort of that whole realm of books that are that are essentially sort of first person essays kind of in the spirit of a, a stand-up comedian and those can be funny and fun as well but those aren't as fascinating to me as you know books that are that are narrative in nature and that are um literary in nature and that that communicate humor and it's funny because i i find when i go back when i finish something and, and look back at it i can sometimes see like oh wow that i think that was funny and when you're when when you're writing it, that's the furthest thing from your mind. You know, you're you're so serious about trying to to um, shape this thing and make it make it the right way that it never even dawns on you that it's that it's it's funny. Um, believe and, it or not, if if I can crack myself up, Tom, <laughs> with a line of dialogue or something, uh, something you know, if I can crack myself up as soon as I've written it, I always compare it to a, a piece in a large puzzle on the floor that pops into place and uh -huh. you don't have to search and you don't ever have to search anymore. It's popped into place. Yeah. And no, that, I love that. That's one, of the, great. One, of the, one of the great takeaways I think of, of writing and, and, and particularly when you crack yourself up because uh, if, if at that moment you're writing for an audience of one. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it's just, this is, this is your second novel. It, it it really sort of I mean you know, I, talking about process. What I want to know is which do you prefer, the writing that first draft and discovery and maybe not knowing everything before you're going in, or do you prefer the editing process? You know, you're in the cutting room and do you do you find yourself, you know, watching your word count go down, or do you? want to add things that you missed and you know which do you prefer do you like the writing of the first draft or the, the editing of it yeah that's a tough question um you know i find that so for me especially you know especially writing a novel i mean it's it's a gargantuan undertaking that spans so much time um that that the fact that anything sort of continuous and and coherent ultimately comes from it is amazing because it's over the span of just days and weeks and months of kind of thinking and refining. And to that end, um, to undertake something that size for me, I always really, I, I have to not know exactly what it is. I, I know that there are a lot of people that I think plot it all out and have their outlines and unless until they know the ending they can't start the beginning and i i, I honestly envy those writers i wish that i, I were, were one of them um but for me there has to be this kind of mystery to it and so to that end the process for me is it, it it's kind of always vacillating between those two things there you know i i might be going through on a first draft and realize you know that i'm you know 50 pages into something and oh now i get where it should start and i would go back and just sort of start the revision process 
And so to me, in a weird way, it's like everything is revision. But that process of kind of shaping and crafting it towards something I find very gratifying. But I also find it gratifying, you know, the, the part where, you know, some tiny thing jumps into your brain like, you know, dude's pregnant with his twin brother. Yep, that's the idea. And you kind of sit, sit down and just sort of freely start writing to figure out what what that piece is. So it's hard for me to differentiate between the two. Do you is it a cleaner distinction for you? Do you prefer one over the other? Well, I think in each book, I've actually had a different experience. The first novel I wrote took me two years to write and five years to revise. And I did not go back and rewrite the first novel. And I would just print out as I went along, Tom, Mm -hmm. and I called it The Brick. (laughs) And The Brick just got bigger and bigger and bigger until it was, you know, 549 pages and 80,000 words. And the first novel I sent home to my parents and they each had a brick in their hands. And they said that they were in bed, they're reading the first novel. And my mom was about 50 pages ahead of my dad. And mom turned to my dad and said, Alan, where did we go wrong? (laughs) So my second, the second novel was poured out of me. um, And, I don't want to say it wrote itself, but I had radio silence for years after the first novel was published. And I thought, oh, my God, this is inspired. And there was very little, very, very little editing involved. I would revise as I went along, like he described with that book. Maybe I'd go back and rewrite the previous day's work. But I wrote every day for a long, long time on that second novel. Mm -hmm. And with Freaks of the Industry, this was completely different, where because it's experimental in its approach, because there are so many characters and so many storylines going on. Mm -hmm. In this case, what you're reading is the result of a lot of feedback from Rare Bird and a lot of decision-making that I had to make with a ton of footage. And it was the cliche of... uh, the three stages in, in, in making a film is the writing, is the shooting, and the editing is your final rewrite. You know, and that's what happened with Freaks of the Industry, and uh, it's in the best shape it ever was. And I would never show a soul what the first draft looked like. <laughs> well, and but I, and I will I'll second that because one of the things that that I sparked to most in, in Freaks is, number one, I mean, it, it's just like a, a screaming vector from the start. It, it, it's sort of like the book just kind of rockets into action. And, and you, it kind of takes you a little, like, you know, a few pages to kind of get situated and realize like, oh, I'm going 100 miles per hour. You know, at first you start and you're thinking, okay, I'm I'm getting in the groove. And then you realize, no, 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 I'm at breakneck speed here. Um, But the other thing that's really great about it is um, the language of it is so, um, so sparse and and crystalline. And I mean, it, it feels like it was chiseled to get it to that place where it's, it's saying everything that it needs to say to move the story forward without beating you over the head with it and kind of making you question at certain points. Uh, but it's all there and it's all in these, this kind of clean, simple, direct 
um, language that really just, again, kind of keeps that pace moving, moving, moving. Um, and, and, and it is experimental in that kind of structure of vacillating between what are essentially film treatments, right, and the kind of more narrative chapters as well. And so it, it just creates a ride that's really pretty singular. And, it, and it's interesting, um, you know, it, it, it seems to me like it's also kind of playing with the idea of genre. It's playing with kind of a, a crime or hard-boiled kind of genre to some extent. Um, is that fair to say? Would you agree with that or no? Well, it's, it's uh, you know, these novels are first and foremost uh, autobiographical. And someone pointed out to me that in every novel I've done, I've had myself murdered. <laughs> and whenever there's a murder, it instantly becomes crime fiction. Who did it? How did he or she die? You know, investigate. And uh-huh. then it sort of becomes a, a crime. What what makes it noir, you know, people said, you know, you know there's this noir element to it. It's... it's it's a, it's, it's almost like a sort of Hollywood noir, you know, uh, when I was in film school, they showed us this movie called in a lonely place where Humphrey Bogart plays this screenwriter with a bad temper and maybe PTSD from world war two. And he's accused of a murder and maybe he is a serial killer. I mean, it's just this incredibly dark, uh, LA love story called in a lonely place. And, uh, it's definitely, uh, I could not write anything else. I do not want to write anything else. I want to write about Los Angeles. I want to write about the movie business. And inevitably, I'm writing about my life. And so, for some reason, I prefer to have myself murdered. And there is a script reader named Larry Masseau who has all these adventures. And in the novel... I show you what Larry does for a living when he writes script coverage. And there's probably more people than not who don't even know mm-hmm. what script coverage looks like mm-hmm. or what it is that they're reading. But like you said, you can assume that it's a film treatment or it's a fake movie, you know? Mm-hmm. And my my challenge, Tom, with showing you Larry's work in reviewing screenplays before they come movies is I wanted to tell stories about the scripts that he was reading, the anatomy of a deal or the shenanigans behind yeah. the script that I'm writing about. So if in Freaks of the Industry, if I mention a certain movie starring the biggest movie star in the world who may or may not be the Antichrist, I had a lot of fun showing the reader what roles he turned down because his script reader turned it down in his review. Yeah. And that's an important distinction too. I, I think I just called it, called that section, um, tr- the film treatments, but they're not, they're film, it's film coverage. It's, it's script yeah. coverage. Um, that's, right. that's an important beat in the story too. I think another kind of overlapping thing, I think between our, our books that have really different manifestations, though. In in yours, in one of the the blurbs at the at the head of the book, um, you, you, there's a quote from uh, Michael Tolkien, who wrote the player, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, and he basically um, talks about the the sort of it's a it, 
the world of freaks is, is sort of a, a world where uh, it's all about striving, I think is the word he uses. Mm -hmm. And when I was reading it, I was thinking of it as really all about ambition where, I mean, it's a world where almost they're, they're almost like pathological blind spots that people have um, where they're so singularly focused on the things they're trying to make and accomplish and do within that the film industry um, that it creates like its own morality. It creates its own ethical system of kind of how to operate and, and nobody even, you know, thinks twice about certain behaviors and certain things when they're in that space. Um, do you think of freaks as being about ambition in that way? Absolutely. I mean, this is a, this is a business where people get excited about a return phone call. Mm -hmm. or an email gets returned and they see that it's a, everyone is sucking on the pipe of maybe mm -hmm. and these de desperados that are not there yet or people who are there yet and have a certain entitlement about themselves. It's almost royalty the way they see people, their agents, their lawyers and managers and script readers as, you know, the, surfs and so that was always always what i'm writing about are these desperados and people who are in the movie business who uh, misbehave and no one calls them on it because they're so successful they're codependent on their success uh you know, their livelihood depends on this person so they really can't judge or speak up too loudly um, I think that's very true in your book. I mean, your siblings are aspirational, not always successful. He is trying to be a rock star, a musician, whereas his sibling becomes wildly successful, almost a businessman as successful as Warren Buffett. <laughs> Yeah, and the, the the split there, the split there, the differences in one brother being so aspirational and really going for it, his life's dream, even though he's not, you know, the most successful or even talented musician. I admire his every attempt to do a concert. You know, I couldn't wait to turn the page to get to his concert as a singer, you know, with a really apathetic audience, mm -hmm. only to find out what became of his twin mm -hmm. and being so brilliant and to go to Harvard. I mean, the book is a study in, 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 in failure and success. And the fact is I always wanted the two of them to get back together because there's a rift. They have a fight and they're separated again, not at birth, but in life. Mm -hmm. And it's really impressive how different these siblings are in your book and from the first page and even from his twins arrival into the world, he is alive. Yeah. And that I, is, that is, that is no mean feat to pull <laughs> that off as well as you do. Your twin is alive. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I do. I, and I, I think about, those elements of the story in that same realm of ambition, right? And it's definitely a different manifestation than in Freaks, but it, but it's also not. I mean, I think that um, 
you know, in in Walter, Walter Brown, that's the, the protagonist's name. I mean, he, it's somebody who has sort of compromised everything in his life to a, a point of stasis, really. Um, and his twin's birth kind of forces him to, and really forces, like he, he almost fights it. He, you know, his twin is so brilliant and so gifted and everything that he touches turns to gold. And, and the resentment that that fosters in Walter really kind of forces him to a place where he has to evaluate and he has to blow up his life and he has to strip it down, get rid of the things that have kind of grown up around him like stalagmites or stalactites and, and, mm -hmm. and try to find a way forward. And for him, that way winds up being the only childhood dream he could remember really having is being a, being a rock star. And he's never played music and he doesn't know how to sing, and he, but he loves listening to music and it's always been sort of a solid place of solace for him or, or an act of solace for him to, to just listen. And so he does, he sets out on this adventure to, to try to figure out what that ambition really means. And, and it's interesting, you know, it's the, you, you use the word success and I think that's always an interesting word in terms of, um, you know, writing a book or being a musician or whatever it is like this idea of, what makes somebody successful with it? Was there a difference between being good at it versus being successful at it? Is there a difference between loving it versus, uh, and the act of doing it being meaningful and replenishing and invigorating and edifying versus the result of that doing being something that turns into money or turns into opportunity or status or perception of others and so I think that, that that whole kind of thread of the book was really interesting to me and in that it's really playing with that idea of ambition and commerce and creativity and the overlap between them. And then on the flip side, you have, you know, the Walter's twin who really is um, so gifted and so great at everything, but including the kind of social, emotional relations with people and, and how to be in the world he's just great at it all. And that comes with a certain type of success that is also difficult to um, understand or unpack or requires, um, be, you know, being unpacked. And th there's a part in the book where Walter, um, you know, says to a person, and I'm paraphrasing, I, I should probably know it because I wrote it, but paraphrasing where he basically says, you know, so, so my twin's going to be wildly successful. Like who, who's ever struggled with that? And the response is, well, everyone. And it, I remember that moment hitting me and, and being just kind of interesting that how we relate to ambition, how we relate to success or failure um, is kind of more primary than what, what ultimately that narrative might look like to someone else or, or what those labels kind of might be. So no, no question. I, yeah. I, the thing that I, I, what struck me about your siblings is how one struggles and the other soars so effortlessly. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, that's and which really one's better sort of, off? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and that's really something where it engaged me to have these parallel train tracks, you know, going on, and very similar to Freaks with its aspirational quality, yeah. both of them. Well, and so speaking of that kind of, you know, 
envy and, and what envy does to kind of drive people or not, or how it helps us understand ourselves. So I, I often think of, or I experience what I call lit envy, where I, it's not just that you like a book that somebody has written, but you read it or, or it could be a song or it could be anything. And you sort of, you have that moment where you think, God damn it. Why didn't I make that? Like I should have thought of that first, or I should have made that first. Do you experience lit envy with uh, any of your, any, any books or literary heroes or? Only once have I experienced lit envy and it was with a novel called House of Leaves. Uh, House of Leaves, in my opinion, is the greatest novel ever written. It is my desert island novel. I could read it over and over and over again because it is so original with the way that it tells its story, the story being told, the sentences, everything about House of Leaves gave me a terminal case of lit envy. <laughs> and so the only way I could cure myself of House of Leaves lit envy was to try to at least come up with something original in a way that hadn't been done before and the only way to maybe tell a story that hasn't been told before is if you maybe approach it autobiographically because no two people are alike. Everybody is in fact a snowflake. And I thought, well, I'm going to tell this story that's extremely personal, that would be original. And the way that I'm going to tell it, the form might remind people of those who have read House of Leaves. And it was the only way I could deal with my lit envy because it, it leveled me. It leveled me. You know, we, we, we talk about the process of writing, but for those people who are not yet published or people who are writing a novel and maybe listen to Rare Bird Radio and people who are fortunate like us to have been produced multiple times, was it difficult for you to get published? Did you suffer? And how did you find Rare Bird? Um. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yes, it, w it was incredibly difficult to get published, but I would also say even more difficult to to write something that I feel like was ready um, to be published. So, I mean, with my, my first novel um, was also published by Rare Bird in, in 2015, and it's called Sutterfeld, You're Not a Hero. And with that book... Um, I, so I, I, I write every day and, uh, you know, sometimes that's for an hour and complete crap comes out. And sometimes it's for four hours and inspired brilliance comes out, maybe depending on who you ask. Um, and oftentimes it's somewhere in between. And so, um, I had started Sutterfeld, you know, probably six or seven years before it was published. And I, you know, wrote a, a full draft of it and, uh, you know, went through and refined and edited and, and then kind of went on and worked on some other things. So I, I made, wrote and directed a couple of feature films um, that, you know, uh, played some small film, film, played film festivals. It was a small independent film, played film festivals across the U.S. and in Europe and got small distribution deals. Um, and so I was kind of writing Sutterfeld in between there and then, you know, reached a point where, you um, you know, I, I started sending it out to, to agents and 
um, and got a couple on the line and, and one in particular that I was like, okay, I think this is going to click. And I was doing some revisions uh, with him. And right at the last moment when, you know, we were sort of ready to kind of sign on the dotted line and move forward, he said, you know, I just don't think I can sell this. Sorry. And he kind of ducked out. And so I, so I, you know, obviously was reeling a bit, but I set it aside and I got onto other things. You know, I started working on other scripts, working on other novels, and then came back to it, you know, probably about a year later and, and spent another year revising it, rewriting it and got back up and went back out to agents again. And the exact same thing happened where a couple bites and one in particular that looked like it was going to move forward. And then at the last minute they pulled out. And so I set it aside and I got back to writing because that's what it's all about to me is just write, write, write. And, and it's all failure anyways, right? Like, I mean, you sit down and you write a page and it's failure. You got to go back in and fix it and make it better. Um, and so I, I, you know, eventually re went back to Sutterfeld. And at about that time, uh, my brother had actually sort of wound up connecting with Rear Bird and uh, and he was like, you should check them out. Like the 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 you know titles they have are pretty awesome, and and I and I feel like what you do fits with them. And so um, I wound up connecting uh, with Rare Bird, and you know sent the manuscript along, and and they gave it a read, and we hopped on a call and talked for a while, and they said, okay, well let's do this. And I said, wait, what? Um, I don't know how to process that or understand it. I'm just used to hearing no, 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 no. Um, and so we, you know, move forward and, uh, and they've been amazing partners. Um, you know, I feel like they really do do justice to, to the, the books I've been trying to, to make and, and they're really great partners with working together. A hundred percent, a hundred percent agree. A hundred percent agree. We are so blessed to, yeah. uh, be published by Rare Bird. It's a joke. Yeah. Uh, what about, how, what was your how, first? How uh, fortunate we are. And it's, it's, um, it's amazing, and it's one of these things. Um, how do you feel about Sutterfeld now that the second novel is coming out tomorrow? How, do you look at your books as your children? Um, I don't. I don't know that I would. I don't know if I would use the children thing, but it's definitely a singular and a weird. Um, it's a singular and a weird thing because you kind of, again, I, I just try to stay focused on writing, and so. Uh, it's interesting where in working on those kind of final um, edits on on Twin, um, it was really funny to me to see different ways where like I, I would see things that I'd say I would never have done that in Sutterfeld. I would never have thought to have go, gone there. I, I, it just it, something different in terms of the overall thing. And even with the next projects that I'm working on now, there are all these ways that I look at and I see like, man, I would never have. I would never, I just wouldn't have done this. The me that was writing that two years ago would never have done this. And so it's funny. I, I relate to both of them at this point where um, they, they feel like they're their own things and they feel like they're deeply connected to me. And I don't know how to really view them like somebody who's outside of myself. But still, when I go back in and start to read them, um, sometimes they start to feel like they were, they were written by a, a stranger. They were written by someone else. And that to me is like the greatest satisfaction is, is feeling like you can kind of view it almost like somebody else might. And it, yeah, I'll never quite really get there with it, but I, I start to separate from remembering what all those decisions were that you make as you write 
a book because there's so many of those decisions and aspects of them still kind of surprise me when I see them. So um, it's a, it is a, a satisfaction and a gratification that uh, I have is singular. I've not known anything else that sort of feels like just literally, you know, when you get that first box of books, just holding it in your hands and just as a thing that exists in the world is, is pretty amazing. Um, it's amazing. It, it yeah. is amazing. It, I, I don't have children, but I, I look at these novels like my children. I don't see them as written by a stranger. I just that I know them so intimately that mm-hmm. working with Rare Bird, the second go-round on Freaks in the Industry was one of the greatest experiences of my life, just working with them in that editing process. And mm-hmm. uh, the, 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 the most extraordinary moment I had was I was so caught up in the editing of it, the final, you know, before you go to final interior, you know, when you start to, it starts to look like a book, book, mm-hmm. you know, and the uh, rare bird had, uh, there was a, someone had done a, you know, sort of a punctuation pass, you know, through the book, and they followed something called Chicago Book of Style. And if you've never been published, you, you know, I, I, I had gone through this with Rare Bird on the last novel, and I was going through the book, and then I noticed this one particular sentence, a semicolon, had been changed to a comma. Mm-hmm. And it may have been the correct <laughs> grammatical approach, uh-huh. but in my mind, I put the semicolon there because I wanted the reader's eye to stop and then read the second clause. And the uh-huh. second, clause, second clause of that sentence would produce a laugh. Uh-huh. I called up Rare Bird, ready to go to war. I had my <laughs> finger on the thermonuclear button. I was ready to go off on someone. And when I simply started out cool and calm and said, you know, I really would like this to be a semicolon and not a comma. I, I, I really worked hard on that sentence. The response was, no problem. <laughs> yeah. And so when that was done, I wasn't taking this too seriously. It, it, was, it was serious. But the fact that I was not alone, that I could actually have these conversations and email exchanges about the book while it's going on. You know, I wish that for everyone who has a novel not yet published or is in the process of this, you know, what's next? What's the editing process like for someone who has spent years on their novel and it's about to be published and you know, I've, 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 I've enjoyed talking to you about your novel and the process with you today. You know, I, I hope people, you know, have a, the same joy that we've experienced, you know, working with Red Bird. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We should, uh, we should probably wrap things up. Are there any last kind of thoughts you want to throw out? We've got so again, you know, my novel, My Vanishing Twin, comes out tomorrow, June thirteenth, and then Freaks of the Industry is coming out July eleventh. Did you say? Yeah, July 
what am I, I think it's July 11th. And then, you know, um, just to, you know, congratulate you on your accomplishment. You know, they say if you do something once, you know, good job. If you do something twice, you're a professional. <laughs> Congratulations to you as well. I mean, I we both know how much work it is. And maybe someday I'll be able to think of myself as a professional, but uh, I'm probably not there yet. <laughs> uh, in some ways I am. In some, way, in some ways, actually, I feel like I, I cultivate, much like Walter does in my book, I cultivate that notion of um, the kind of a you know, working for its own sake. And, and, and to that end, I, I, I kind of always position myself as being kind of, um, you know, doe-eyed and, um, you know, not assuming things. I think when I get more invested in trying to, the outcomes of something, you know, what is this novel going to turn into? What is the thing going to be? What is this, what is the answer to the story? I stop really writing and I start trying to do something else that's more prescriptive. And so I think I, I hold on to my, my um, inner novice, um, even as I, as I hopefully, yeah, on some level feel like I'm graduating towards, towards the professional side of it. Um, and so congrats to you as well. It's an incredible amount of work. And, um, and uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be writing many more and we'll be talking about writing for years to come. Absolutely. And, and the next time I see uh, something truly grotesque in the movie business, I, I always think to myself, see you in my next novel. <laughs> All right, Adam. Awesome talking to you, man. Good talking to you.